Welcome to Prison Presents. We're your hosts, Vivian Lee and Sophia Osborne, and you're listening to CITR 101.9 FM, broadcasting from the unceded, ancestral, and traditional land of the Musqueam peoples on UBC Vancouver campus. We're so excited to be here today for the first ever episode of Prison Presents, a radio show dedicated to bringing you readings and conversations with writers from around the world. If you haven't heard of Prison International, we're a quarterly literary magazine based on UBC Vancouver campus, and our mandate is to publish the best in contemporary writing and translation from Canada and from around the world. Prism is actually the oldest literary magazine in Western Canada, and writing from Prism has been featured in Best American Stories, Best American Essays, and the Journey Prize Stories, among other notable publications. For this radio show, we'll be bringing you readings and interviews with the many amazing poets, fiction, and nonfiction writers who have graced PRISM's pages, as well as contest judges and faculty and students from the UBC Creative Writing Program. And we're so excited to get started. But before we jump into today's episode, should we take a moment to introduce ourselves? Sure. I'm Vivian Lee. I'm in my third year of the MFA program at UBC in Creative Writing and I'm the prose editor for PRISM International. I primarily work in fiction and poetry, with work forthcoming or published in The Fiddlehead, The Massachusetts Review, and The New Quarterly, among others. I love exploring the different disciplines available in the program, including film, TV, and comics. I've recently written, directed, and produced my first short film, which will be screening in a film festival in Toronto. A debut chapbook with my original illustrations, Someday I Promise I'll Love You, will be out in late fall with 845 Press. I'm currently working on my thesis novel, engaging with themes of sisterhood, mental health, Buddhism, and time travel. I've always been interested in podcasting and radio, and I'm excited to be co-hosting Prism Presents. And I'm Sophia Osborne. I'm in my second year of the MFA in creative writing here at UBC, and I work as a freelance writer, editor, and audio producer. My background is in literary journalism, with bylines and publications like Maisonov, The Taiyi, The Narwhal, Passage, This Magazine, and more. Since starting the MFA, I've become very excited by many other genres like fiction, poetry, and songwriting. And my thesis is actually a TV series inspired by my Singaporean-Canadian family. I also have another podcast called Beyond Blathers, where we dive deeper into the insects, fish, and fossils you can find in the video game Animal Crossing New Horizons. I co-host it with my friend Olivia, who is an entomology master's student, and we've been doing it for over two years now. I also used to work on Terra Informa, an environmental news radio show on CJSR 88.5 FM in Edmonton. So it's safe to say I love all things radio and podcasting. We're so happy to be here with you all. Now for today's episode, we will be discussing PRISM's current contest, the Pacific Spirit Poetry Prize, which will close for submissions on October 31st. The grand prize is $1,500 Canadian, with runner-up prizes of $600 and $400. For more information about submitting, check out our website at prismmagazine.ca. Yeah, we'd highly encourage you to submit and hope that the conversations we share today will help inspire you and give you some tips as you polish your submissions. So today, we'll be sharing readings and interviews with Grace Lau, the judge for this contest, as well as last year's winner, Miguel Perez. We really enjoyed these conversations and hope you will too. So without further ado, here's our conversation with Grace Lau. Grace's debut collection of poetry, The Language We Were Never Taught to Speak, is published by Guernica Editions and is a Lambda Literary Award finalist. Her work can be found in Grey Magazine, Contemporary Verse 2, Arc Poetry, and elsewhere. Find her on social media at Thrill and Grace. Hi, I'm Grace. I am a poet currently living in Midland, Ontario. I was born in Hong Kong and my family immigrated to Vancouver when I was about four or five. So yeah, I grew up in Vancouver and I started writing poetry in earnest about five, six years ago. I went to UBC, but I didn't study creative writing. It was a psychology, English lit double major or something. But it never really crossed my mind to to write about poetry. I didn't even, poetry was not on my radar at all at the time. So my now partner kind of got me into poetry, like when we first started going out. And yeah, I started reading 
a lot more. I used to read mostly fiction, mostly nonfiction. And then, yeah, I read Amber Dawn's collection of glosses and it kind of just blew my mind. And I just started borrowing a ton of books, buying a ton of books. And yeah, then I started writing poetry. It was pretty bad in the beginning. It's a real testament to our relationship that my partner read all of those and still, like we're still together. Because um, Amber Dawn was actually her teacher, her professor at UBC at the time. She was studying creative writing. So yeah, and now I'm writing more. I'm not a full-time poet right now. I, I still work kind of nine to five, but I try to devote my, my evenings and my weekends as much as I can to, to reading and writing. Oh, that was lovely. Yeah, thank you. I was wondering if you could read a bit from your collection or anything else you're working on right now. Yeah, yeah, I can. Cool. So read from my collection, The Language We Were Never Taught to Speak. The, the first poem I'll read is called In the Name of Love. In the beginning, God named Adam and Adam named Eve and the flowers and the animals the way we give names to what we own. We are born rich and we name it divine right. We are born poor and we name it fate. The rain turns into sun and my mother names it blessing. I name it Ontario weather. We name our children what we love, hope, dawn, Paris. We name our children the future and christen them with oil as black and thick as endless night. We don't always love what we name. Some named Pride Party. We named Pride Riot. Now who does it belong to? We can't always own what we love. We fear death, so we name it afterlife. But no matter how many names we give death, it is still not ours. In the beginning, my lips knew one name, then learned another in grace. I hope my parents love what they named. I hope that though I'm not theirs, I am enough. Oh my gosh, that was so nice. Thank you. <laughs> Thank you. <laughs> A lot of poems are about my parents and my family in this book. I'll read another poem that is kind of a fun one because I was a huge fan of this boy band when I was a kid. Oh, what are they um, called? <laughs> O-Town. They're called O-Town and like they are definitely not on the same tier as Backstreet Boys and NSYNC. They, that's probably why they weren't as successful as they could have been because they came out like in the same time. But that was when like they had no chance against both Backstreet Boys and NSYNC. But yeah, this is a poem I wrote about that. And it's called The Perfect Groupie. For a time I went to bed dreaming of boys. My first boy band was a teenage dream of ripped jeans, frosted tips, and too much hairspray pouting from my bedroom walls. I even had their sold out show on VHS. Yes, this was how I would fast forward to my happily ever after. My first boy band was actually a man band. For a time I went to bed dreaming of five man boys named after Orlando, but not from Orlando. I still remember their favorite books, sports, and pizza toppings. I studied Angel Fire fan sites the way we study what we want to become. My mother was so excited for me to act like a girl. For a time, I went to bed dreaming of boys. Their hair, their clothes, their songs, their dances. They were the perfect blueprint for a little girl who longed to be a teenage heartthrob the kind of girl a girl could love. Teenage heartthrob. <laughs> I don't know if you're familiar with Tegan and Sarah, but their heartthrob album really gave me boy band vibes. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Let's end with a love poem. Uh, this one is called At Your Best. And the title is a reference to a song by Aaliyah. Rest in peace, which is a great song, at your best. It is Friday night and we are at home on the couch, your head on my shoulder, a well-worn path. 
This is not the first time you have slowed my hours and yet how the seconds gasp to be doing nothing at all, but feeling the universe wax content in your breath. It is Saturday night and we've left our other lovers in a lullaby moon that croons beneath a dusty frame like a memory of the sun that offers no warmth. There is only the green of your eyes ringed with gold as clear as a summer stream and I feel as if I will never thirst again. It is Sunday morning and the spell remains unbroken. I trace you in what's left of stardust. Another leaf has burst forth from our English ivy. I can't remember when I gave the sun back his hours, but now I am at peace with the world and its unloveliness. Yes, I think I would be happy doing this every night of my life. Thank you. Oh my gosh. <laughs> Thank you. Has that summer vibe too. Yeah. 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 I'm at peace with the world and its unloveliness. Wow. Yeah. Especially in this economy right now. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. 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 Well, thank you so much. That was lovely. Thank you yeah. so much, Grace. Yeah. Thank you. Amazing. thank you. I know you talked a bit about sort of how you first became interested in poetry. I find it really heartening to hear about like your experiences writing your first poems versus obviously where you've come to now and just how beautiful those poems are. Could you talk a bit about like what your experience was like with your with your process and just kind of how you kind of came into your own as a poet? Yeah, that's a great question. Um, honestly, in the beginning, I was really, I felt like I was really not grasping at straws, but there was so much coming into my head when I was writing that it was hard to know where to focus. Like when I wanted to write, when I sat down and I was like, yeah, I want to write a poem. There were so many things like from my family to growing up and coming out to like everyday things, just the world around me that it was sometimes hard to pick one thing to write about. And I would find a lot of things seeping in to a single poem and then the editing became really important. But yeah, I think with this collection specifically, finding my voice or coming into my own, it helped to read other poets' work. Reading other poets that I admired, like Aberdon, Ocean Vuong, when I discovered him, I was like, oh my God. Um, there's so many, so many Canadian poets, living poets, like not, you know, Shakespeare, not Marlowe or people you study in school who are dead for <laughs> hundreds, hundreds of years. Um, but that really helped me be able to visualize, like, this is what a collection could be. This is what a collection could look like if you can make it as true to your voice, as true to your kind of experiences as you can. And another thing that I don't know if other poets struggle with this, but when I was first writing my poems, a lot of times I would notice my family's voices kind of coming through. Like not literally their voices, but like, I think for, for, for me personally, growing up and with my family specifically and my experiences, there, we, don't, we didn't talk a lot as a family. Like my parents didn't really talk. We don't talk about feelings. We don't talk about like, you know, the, the deep stuff. It's always like, have you eaten? How are you like, how was school? And a lot of that kind of pent up need, I think as humans to talk about things that are a little bit deeper or connect on that level. A lot of that came out in the poems. And that was really interesting for me to see after I put all the poems together because I didn't realize that there was that big of an impact coming from the people that I grew up with. So yeah, that that was a huge learning experience in terms of like coming into my own. Totally. And a process of like self-discovery on the page. Yeah. 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 That's exactly it. Like, yeah, that that's, you just nailed it because when I when people ask me what my poems or like what I experience or how I get inspired by my poems or why I write poetry, a lot of it is that cathartic kind of self-discovery. Because when I write poems, it, it really does feel like I'm reliving that memory. And it's like a second chance to live that memory, if that makes sense. 
because you, you only live once like yolo everyone you only live once but <laughs> when you write a poem you're giving yourself the chance to think about that situation or that event in a different light and yeah that's for me a poem like it lives a second time a third time like when you're reading it out loud that's like another life and it, it's like a way for me to squeeze every drop out of out of living I love yeah. that. I also feel sometimes with poetry, it's like a different way of um, changing that experience to something a little different. Yeah. Um, yeah. Yeah. Maybe even more positive, even though it was really a negative experience yes. or yeah. changing it to make it your own in a way. Yeah. Um, yeah. Like reclaiming yeah. a memory kind of. Yeah. I was also wondering, this might be kind of a selfish question. Yeah, go for but it. Do you have any advice for for people who are are writing about family and sort of engaging with themes of oh a family in such a kind of emotional way, especially if you have a family yeah. that doesn't talk about those things as much. Yeah, if you have any advice about that, it would be appreciated. Make sure they don't read it. <laughs> <laughs> um, yeah, I, mean, I don't know how useful this would be. Like for me, when I was writing the poems that dealt most with family, I would say maybe don't try to self-edit too much in the beginning. Like it's a lot of, it's a lot of feelings. It's a lot of like possibly trauma. It's a lot of stuff that comes out, I think, for folks who, you know, maybe didn't grow up in like the happiest childhood that comes out when you write poetry about it. And for me, sometimes I had a tendency to like self-censor or be like, oh no, it's maybe that's like too extreme and I shouldn't write that. But you can always do that after. You can always get it. The most important thing is to get the the truest parts of you on the page first. And then, you know, if you really don't want that to be in print, then you can cross <laughs> it off. But I think some of the most powerful were the ones the most emotional poems I have in the book were a result of that like not self-editing too much in the beginning and just trying to be true to yourself like when I was writing the book like I really wrote it with the assumption that no one in my family would ever read it and I think that also makes a difference if you're writing about like familial things yeah no thank you that's really good advice for us and anyone else who is listening as well yeah so I think uh kind of building on what we're talking about in your collection I'm curious like I know you said you moved to when you were around like for a very young age and I'm curious how you like interact with language and like Chinese characters or mm. kind of that diaspora kind of like remembering or like even like you know learning about something that you feel so far away from yeah that's such a good question. So when I moved to Canada, I was about four or five. And my Cantonese was actually way better than my English. Like I was in ESL classes in Vancouver for at least three or four years. So growing up, I was actually much, much better <laughs> at speaking Cantonese and reading Cantonese than, than I am now. And it's something that I live in constant fear of. Like I'm just going to lose it. And I know that every day I'm losing it and I'm losing more because there's not a lot of, you know, opportunities to speak Cantonese when you live in Midland, Ontario. And a lot of my friends are Chinese, um, but, you know, some are CBC, some are not super fluent. And, you know, we're all just struggling trying to speak to each other. And like if we tried, it would just be a hot mess. But in my writing, especially in the first collection, I think it's something that I'm just hyper aware of. Um, there's Chinese characters in there, there's references to Hong Kong. And it's a way, it's a really interesting way of writing as well, because when you're writing poems and also incorporating another language that you, you speak, even though you're getting worse at it every day, it lets you kind of think about words and phrasing and you know play on the meanings of the characters in in different ways for example in a poem i wrote about rupaul's drag race yuhua hamasaki there's the, so yuhua's name like 
Yuhua is a, uh, could be a man's name in in Chinese. I think I read from an interview with with her, and that's what she mentioned. But Yuhua, I mean, depending on what characters, like the homo homophones, I think you, in in Chinese, Yuhua could also mean like a jade flower. It could mean like something that's similar but different. But the, in Cantonese, especially, it's a tonal language, and there's so many fun like wordplay things that you can do with Cantonese that it's it's a pretty fun part of writing poetry. Like not all of my poems have Chinese characters in them, but sometimes when it does fit, you're like, wow, like that's awesome. I love language. Like that just gives it an extra like five layers of meaning when you can add those characters in there. It's like Chinglish, but in poem, <laughs> which I love. And at the end of the day, I think when I write poems, sometimes the most like pleasure, like the most satisfaction I get from writing a poem is when you can like make a word kind of twisted or you can make a word mean different things or you can just bring in an unexpected layer to the phrase or the stanza, whatever you're writing. And that to me is the fun, the fun side of poetry, which I absolutely love. And, and Cantonese really, yeah, Cantonese really is great for that. And Chinese is great for that. Even the nonsensical idioms and like all of the, I don't know how, how familiar, are you, are you fluent? Do you speak Chinese or? I speak Mandarin and Cantonese. Mandarin I'm Cantonese, from Guangzhou, yes. yeah. I'm from Guangzhou, yeah, cool. So yeah, like all of the cool, like nonsensical things. Like when I try to explain to my friends or like my partner, like this is what like, some say means like oh yeah, so yeah. Saying, yeah. <laughs> like it's so hard to <laughs> explain but it's yeah. it's hilarious seeing them try to process like oh okay i just do a gesture i'm like yeah, yeah, <laughs> yeah. I'm like hopefully that translates yeah well thank you and so so since you're the judge for the 2022 pacific poetry prize we were wondering if you have any advice for those who might be working on their on their submissions at the moment Ooh. Advice. <laughs> um, I definitely would not worry about like things like length or you know stuff like that too much. I'm really looking for poems that actually I shouldn't say that because sometimes you don't know what you're really looking for until you see it. But I would say that poems that tend to resonate with me are ones that have a degree of wordplay or they can communicate something unexpected about a seemingly ordinary thing or an event or a situation. I think that's one of the things I love most about poems and, and poets as people is just their ability to observe the world and see things in a different light and be able to write about that in a poem. So yeah, that's definitely something that if I see that in a poem, I'm gonna that's gonna catch my eye for sure. Yeah. So yeah, subject matter. It doesn't have to be, you know, super deep subject matter or, you know, a very serious thing. It could be anything that can kind of bring your skill to. I think that's the mark of the, the mark of, you know, good poet, the skill that you have to make even something that's seemingly ordinary and turn it into something beautiful. So I hope that helps. <laughs> so I'm curious, kind of, are you working on another collection? Are you working on any other exciting projects similar to that? Yeah, I think mainly right now it's the next collection of, of poetry it's been really fun writing again after like after i published the first collection i just didn't write for many many months like at least half a year and i was getting a little worried that i was like, oh this is the only the only book <laughs> i'm ever gonna put out and that i'm pretty much tapped out now but after that it, it started coming back and yeah, so I've started writing a bunch of poems. I don't think I'm quite have enough yet for a full collection, but I will say that they're a lot happier than the poems in my first collection. It's almost like a whole like cathartic process. But yeah, I think the next collection will be way more about being happy than wallowing in sadness. <laughs> I love that. We need some joy in yeah. our lives these days. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> Honestly, for sure. yeah. Yeah, I think my last question was if you if you have any advice for BIPOC poets looking to sort of break into the scene in, in Canada. 
Ooh. I think persistence, if it's gonna, I don't think I'll be saying anything new, but persistence is definitely important. I was submitting just a ton. I think I submitted to like 20 plus presses before my manuscript for the first collection got published. And I basically just Googled like every, every press that was publishing poetry in Canada to, to find that. But if you're a poet, I mean, if the person who's listening to this is already a poet or like a working poet, then they probably don't need me to tell them that. Like persistence is really important because it's just rejection like after, sometimes I look, log into submittable and it's just like, oh yeah, it's a lot of gray going on there. <laughs> a lot of gray. I only um, have like accepted open sometimes. I just don't even uh, have any of, or the active ones open. Yeah, <laughs> only the active ones. <laughs> so I mean, that's not new. I will say that it's hard to not kind of fall into the, oh, there's only so many like spots for BIPOC poets because, you know, there's this quota and, you know, once a press or once someone has got their, you know, queer Chinese Canadian poet, then that's, that's it. Like everyone else is, don't bother, don't bother submitting. But I think, yeah, it, it's, it's hard to not feel competitive sometimes, I think, just because we've been put into the situation where you kind of naturally have to feel that way because it's not a lot of visibility for, you know, more of these stories to be told, if that makes sense. And that was something that I struggled with a lot when I was first starting out because I was super sensitive to that, just like knowing that, you know, you're like a Chinese and a woman and you're like queer. It's like taking off all the boxes myself. Even like I'm just doing it in my head. No one's telling me that. I'm just doing it in my head already. Yeah, once I got past that, it, it just became a lot. You can be like happier for like other poets when you see their work being promoted. You're like, oh my God, there's Jan Suk Fong Lee and like Rita Wong, Larissa Lai and like Evelyn Lau, all these amazing poets that I really wish that we would have studied in school. Like I would have been so much more, I would have paid so much more attention if I like, if these were the people that I was studying in school. And how much does that change your mindset if, if that was like your curriculum and now you're a writer and now they're applying and you're like, oh yeah, that's expected that you see all of these poets who look like you, who have stories that you can relate to. And that makes you a little bit sad because a lot of people don't even get to that point where they realize, oh, you know, it's actually pretty awesome to have, you know, this wide range of living poets in Canada that you can read, you can like go to their events, you can actually meet them and talk to them. Yeah, there are some English lit majors who I've met and they've, I tell them what I've been reading and they're like, oh, I've been reading like people who have like, you know, Shakespeare and whatever. And I'm like, well, do you read that these contemporary my, poets? That was my whole degree. And they're yeah. all like, they're all like, no, I don't know who they are. And I'm like, yeah, I mean, yeah. you can, you can, you should study them. You can talk to them actually about yeah. thinking about what they might have thought. Like you can actually interview yeah. them. Go like, so what did you think when you're writing this? You know, like, yeah, you don't have to do that. And yeah, it, yeah. That story really resonates with me because I think the first moment I thought of like actually writing short fiction was when I was in my short fiction class, Canadian short fiction class, and we read Simple Recipes by Madeleine Tien. And that was the moment after I read that story, I was like, wait, I can write, maybe. <laughs> yeah. Before that, I had no, I, I mean, I wrote things, but I was like, I don't think this is going to go anywhere. And, and after that moment, I was like, oh, maybe I actually have a place in, somewhere in Canada. We don't know. We don't know. But we, that's what I thought. Yeah, for actually for me too, Vivian, it was, I think when I was in high school, I read Do Not Say We Have Nothing by Madeline Tian. Oh, lovely. Yeah. And then I looked at the back, like in the about the author, and it said that she did the Mm -hmm. MFA at UBC. And I, and that was the first time I heard of that program. And I was like, wow, maybe I could do that. And now I'm here. That's amazing. I love that. I love that. Well, thank you so much. Yeah. Thank Thank you for all your insights, all your wisdom. Yeah, it was great meeting you, Sophia and Vivian. Have a good rest of your day. You're listening to Prism Presents on CITR 101.9 FM. That was an interview with the poet Grace Lau. We'll be right back with another insightful conversation, but first, a quick break. You want to change the state of the world? 
but instead you keep buying material goods to satisfy whatever desire you have in that very moment? Me too. But now you can do both. Rock Shop and Community Thrift is a local vintage shop that fulfills your 1970s all-chic fantasy while also supporting at-risk people through their compassionate and supportive work training program. All of their profits go to the PHS Community Services Society to support ongoing health care, harm reduction, and health promotion projects in Vancouver and Victoria. So stop by their two locations, Community Unisex on West Hastings or Community Frock Shop on Corral Street. And if you know any other local businesses that deserve recognition for their generous business practices or their contributions to the community, please DM us on Instagram at CITR and Discorder because we would love to spotlight them. Because hey, if you can't stop buying, you might as well start supporting. Do you love being caffeinated? And do you hate that greedy, soulless, international conglomerates are succeeding in the cutthroat world of coffee? Sounds like local coffee roasters Trek Coffee is for you. Trek Coffee is 100% indigenous and military veteran owned and operated. Let's keep small businesses thriving. Stop by Sunshine Convenience on 4th, the Super Value on Commercial, or Grocery Checkout in the Nest to pick up some Trek Coffee today. About 40% of UBC students experience food insecurity. Sprouts is hosting a weekly produce market from 10.30 to 1.30 every Monday in the Life Building. With produce from local farms, students are free to take whatever they want. Sprouts Cafe is open from Monday to Thursday and is offering 30 free meals a day, completely free and no questions asked. They also host Community Eats, a completely free hot lunch that is open for all. Stop by and support the Sprouts cause for sustainable, accessible food at UBC. Hey, why are you so sad today? My succulent died. Can you even kill those things? It's okay, there's a Dead Succulent Haunt episode every Thursday at 5 p.m. here on CITR to help your plants grow and to help you mourn those you've lost. Come on, let's go start some cuttings and listen to Dead Succulent Haunt with Everly on CITR 101.9. Welcome back. Now we're excited to share our conversation with Miguel Perez, winner of the Pacific Spirit Poetry Prize in 2021. So my name is Miguel Martin Perez. Uh, I'm an Afro-Dominican-American queer poet uh, from Harlem and the Bronx in New York. I hold an MFA from UC Riverside, uh, and I, to this day, still live here in California. And some of my work can be found in the Mississippi Review, Accentos, the Rally Review, Santa Fe Writers Project, Quarterly, Beyond Words, and the Fourth River. And that was the winner of the the 2021 Pacific Spirit Poetry Prize, which I'm endlessly thankful for. We were hoping that you would read that winning poem to us, as well as maybe a few a few other poems as well. Uh, yeah, absolutely. Uh, so the first one is Good Water. A riptide pulled me out past breakpoint yesterday. Good water pushes along its surface and coerces underneath. I felt him. He was with me. I had no wherewithal to hold him, but he was there. A great wave in an ocean. Whereas I am everything of smoke but dissipation. All but dissolution. Am I not an ephemeral heat? Or anything warmer than entry is anything colder. I would have become him, but an embrace always breaks. Good water, resilient and boundless, tried to swallow me. He begs for truth in his sleep. I never lie with silence. Sand escaped my feet, the coast so far. There were reasons to stop looking. Please, God, let me go. Waves kept crashing. My limbs rendered nothing, head hung. 
spent all my strength flailing for half-breath. I should have drowned. Now, sunshine melts into mountains. My hair still reeks of undersea and buries my pillow in sand. I feel myself constantly bobbing, nauseous and sore, thirsting for salt. I water plants that die and die. There's a twinkling by the street lamps, like wind chimes. I want to topple power lines or cry into the shadow arms of trees, expecting a reaper to dry me off or good water to climb into bed. Uh, the, the next poem is Ode to Youth. The beach in sudden dawn light gleams, and from our perch, this sandy bluff, my friends and I can see what seems to be the fins of sharks. With proof enough of recklessness, we pile our clothes amid the merim grass and slide as we were born into the rough and merciless waters. The tide creeps cold and still we dive in side by side. Finally, ways to leave are waves. The lilies are losing their petals in pairs, and I linger like resin in glass. Every outcome lies at the center of a sunflower, wilting in the vase on my bookshelf, beside the uncalibrated clock blinking in old time, a loud algae green. All this wouldn't have happened if we hadn't left our shore. What was it for? To smoke cigarettes on some balcony and hear waves crash. Two seagulls fly from one horizon to the other in opposite directions. I feel the early morning in my brittle bones, yucca fibers, sour milk. I splatter across this blood water sunset, its curdled clouds and ocean veins, the silhouettes of palms splitting duplexes in two, briny swirls of Van Gogh air, that gold-speckled moon. Let the water drown you, late into the night, and sleep, deep through coral, and chain yourself to seabed. Saturate the mind with good, with leagues, with bioluminescence, limp and floating helpless in a world too busy flooding to love you. Wow, thank you so much. Beautiful themes in there, like a lot of beautiful imagery and language as well. So thank you for sharing. Anytime. We were also wondering, kind of related to that, when you first became interested in poetry and kind of how you came across it. Was it during your MFA or was it before that? It started in high school. I, I must have been a freshman. It was like ninth grade, which meant it was like circa 2009, 2010. It came to light to me that I was dealing with depression. And, you know, up until that point, depression was always this like unreal caricature of just someone wallowing, just miserable and, and weeping all day long. So I, I was hesitant to accept that. But over time, you know, my parents had me kind of realize that about myself. And I was constantly in my head. So I decided to start journaling. That, that's when I got into writing more broadly. And what I noticed was that over time, I was just obsessed with getting all of my memories of the day down. They, become, they became tomes. Like, they were so, so long. And... At some point, I decided, you know what, I, I, I've been forgetting some things that I wanted to get down in the course of describing a thing that happened earlier that day. So I decided to condense when I was writing. I, I wanted to write faster and more efficiently and just, you know, like crystallize these moments and these images into, into their essences, just like the core of it and just move on. I started just like breaking syntax for that purpose, just to go faster. And, and different punctuations started being like shorthands to me. And I realized, okay, that this is probably what I'm going to do for the rest of my life. I really enjoyed it. It became an obsession. I was really struck in the pieces that you read with the water and ocean imagery. And it's something that I find myself like I, I can't get away from it. 
in my own writing like sometimes I try to write about other things and like the water imagery kind of always comes in and I, I just loved hearing it in yours and I was wondering if you could talk a bit about like where that kind of theme comes from for you and how it like resonates for you yeah also a little about like mental health I'd love to hear more about how that also influences like your poetry as well for sure the story I recount in in Good Water that I read earlier is is a true story, but it was metaphorized. Last year, yeah, like Ju- June 2021, I was at a beach in Marina del Rey in California, and I was chasing after my partner who had just recently got into the water. And uh, they're a much faster swimmer than I am. I'm, I'm an extremely weak swimmer. So I, you know, they were just swimming ahead and I was just trying to like tread water that was slowly getting uh, higher and higher. And I, I look ahead and it, it seemed like it, in the span of 20 seconds, they were like a quarter mile away. And I was like, I did not know that, that they were such a fast swimmer. And within just like in the span of three seconds, water was waist high and then became a foot above my head high. Like so... I think what that did was cause the panic attack and I started flailing. Like I said, I'm a weak swimmer and I, I never really learned how to float. What it turns out to have been was a riptide carried us both out much faster than we expected it to. Yeah, so I, I, I started yelling for help. My partner heard me and they're a much louder yeller than I am. So they, they got attention for me and the lifeguards eventually saved me. You know, I, I health-wise, I was fine. I didn't require CPR or anything. But it was probably the the closest near-death experience I I had. So, yeah, that completely changed the way I looked at poetry that I had already written. It changed the way I was writing poetry, and it it, it gave like an additional layer of meaning to some of the themes that I was already writing about. You know, I, I just kept thinking about water in general, how it's you know, it's a symbol for life, like it's a it's a life bringer, but in excess, it means death, or in dearth of it, it also means death. And, you know, th- this just colored my, my understanding of poems in which I talk about immigration, you know, the, the way that my family came to the US, um, you know, we're, we're Dominican, they came from DR, it's a Caribbean island, they had to, to fly over an ocean in order to, in order to get here. Yeah, water became something, something like really malleable in my work, and it symbolizes a lot of things in in different poems. I, I started using it as a metaphor for, uh, for abuses that I dealt with when I was a child. You know, just the idea of being like submerged, just trying to stay afloat in a sea of shame, things like that. Yeah, and as for mental health, it's basically baked into my my poetry. It's it's necessary to you know to to even have the perspectives that like my speakers have they're a little dour. I I try to maintain some some positive outlooks, some hopeful themes. You have to have a little bit of hope, but yeah, it, it, poetry has been a way for me to process a lot of the things that have happened in my life. A lot of my work is about reckoning with the past, with history, with family histories, with you know, just what led me to the point where I am and what led others around me to the points that they are. Poetry has very much helped me with that. Otherwise, it would have stayed bottled up and festered. Of course, yeah. Yeah, poetry has this kind of cathartic feeling. It, it kind of, it helps me kind of make sense of the chaos in this world and the chaos in myself and like channels that through somehow. Yeah, I, you touched upon this before about like, the writing process, but I'm curious what your writing practice looks like. And is it a regular one or is it one that kind of comes through depending on what what you've encountered during your day? Uh, I've so desperately wanted to be the writer that manages to stick to a routine, who just says like, okay, at 6 p.m. I'm going to write for an hour straight. I'm incapable of that. Most often, what will happen is whatever I'm doing, I'll drop it if I have a thought. I'll jot it down and I try my best to turn my brain off in that moment. Just make sure that I get down what I thought about. And 
if I'm capable of expanding on it, building off of it in that moment, I will. If I can't, I don't. So what I'll do is I'll, I'll, I'll just like leave it alone for a day or a week or a month. And I'll go back in my journal, you know, just flip through, see if any of that was actually good. If I decide to build from there, I will. Sometimes what I'll do is I'll take some of these pieces together. If, if they, you know, if they have a similar mood, a similar vibe, similar themes, similar words, and I'll see if I can piece them together. I actually, I, I learned this strategy from Jericho Brown at a reading I attended in 2019. He has these bits and pieces. And after, I think, I think he said like a year, he'll put them together in, in a document, print them out, cut them into strips, and just lay all of these strips across the table. Just like it's like a tactile process, he'll just piece them together like a, like a puzzle, and and that did work for me a number of times. But you know that's that's I guess the act of um of writing. I I think the hardest part for me is the editing. That's where I'm most invested. Thank you for sharing that. Yeah. And you mentioned Jericho Brown. Who who else have has influenced you? as a writer and a poet, I'm, I'm, I'm interested if you were reading poetry in high school when you kind of started writing it or, or had you not read a lot of poetry then? And I, in high school, not, I, I barely read any poetry. Every now and then, you know, we'd be assigned poems to read in English classes. And that always was extremely interesting to me, but I never like, I never went further with it. But yeah, I, the first poet that I actually got into was while I was in undergrad. So like around 2012 or so, or 2013. And it, it's a bit of a cliche. I'm a little embarrassed to say it, <laughs> uh, you know, both because it's a cliche and because he he was just historically a pretty problematic person, uh, Allen Ginsberg. I remember reading Howl and it just blew me away because I, I guess up until then I had an understanding based on what, you know, typical academic literary canon suggests that, you know, poetry had to, you know, usually had form, usually was very polite. I, I, I guess I had an, an assumption of what poetry was supposed to be. And I read his work and I was like, okay, this, this completely shatters every bit of understanding that I have. Like, you know, just that's when I realized that when it comes to poetry, this is the break the rules genre. And that that really freed my writing. It freed my my perspective of what I'm doing here. But more more recently, my biggest influences have to be Danica Kelly, Jericho Brown, as I said earlier, Eduardo Corral, and Javier Zamora. Also, Vanessa Angelica Villarreal is phenomenal. And what these poets did were they just opened additional doors for me. They showed me that, you know, there are some things that I was scared to even share with my closest friends that can be discussed in your work and will be heard and will be taken seriously. Danica Kelly's bestiary especially was crucial, you know, in the, in the process of like the manuscript that I'm working on, it, it, you know, my first collection of poems one of the major issues that it grapples with is sexual abuse. And Danica Kelly's bestiary was so raw and visceral, haunting. Like it's, it's, it's a terrifying collection of poems, but at the same time, extremely tender, very, very powerful. It felt like a reclamation of power. And I'd never read work like that before. It, it changed everything for me and it, it allowed me to process things that I'd been holding off on, things in my own life that I wanted to pretend were not there. Thank you for sharing. I was wondering if you could tell us more about the background of your piece, Ways to Leave or Waves, and how it came to be. Was that also kind of, as you said before, a way of processing something as well? Yeah, so it, it, it was soon after the drowning. and. I just kept thinking about whether, you know, how it was very possible that I could have been gone in that moment. And I just kept thinking about the ways people have left, the ways my family left the Dominican Republic, the way friends have 
you know, left me to, you know, to live in different places, to live in different countries or, or friends that have passed. And I started feeling very small. And it, I just found it weird that I, I got to live while people continued to die for all sorts of reasons. Um, and I, I've never been very religious. So I, I try to make some sense of the world where I can. And I had a hard time making sense of it. So ways to leave or, wa- or waves is kind of me processing and coming to grips with the fact that I continue living in the way that the world continues living despite of or in order to overcome you know the myriad hardships that we deal with yeah that's that's very powerful thank you thank you for providing all that background and of course yeah insights as well yeah and and the version of the poem that we heard today is a bit different from the version that was initially published uh, and won the prize and we were wondering i know you said that editing is something you find a bit harder in, in your process. And could you talk a bit about how you approach revision? Yeah, absolutely. I So one thing that I came to grips with a long time ago was that the poem is never done. You know, you, you come back to a poem that you thought was done a month ago and you start seeing places where you would actually change it. You, you, you thought it was perfect, but it never really is. The same was the case with, with Ways to Leave. So... <laughs> Uh, I think the best thing, at least for me, to do is after writing something, you leave it for a while. And then you come back with like a bit of a fresher mind. And it's it's just a matter of employing every tool in your kit. I will start changing all sorts of things one by one. Like I'll test out a different point of view. You know, like I wrote the poem in, in first person. What if it's in third person? What if it's in second person? What words can I change to get more accurate or to get more obscure about it, make it a little bit more abstract, more colorful? One thing I like to do is I'll, I'll take the poem and make it into a prose poem, just like put it all together in, in, in a paragraph. And I will start reading it aloud until I find a place where it seems natural to stop. And that's where I'll put the line break. And I'll just keep doing that, reading it over and over and over again aloud until the pauses that are the line breaks or the stanza breaks sound right. Editing is a long process. I become manic, <laughs> just very, very obsessive. It sounds very detailed, but at the same time, it sounds kind of playful as well. Oh, yeah. Yeah, it, it, it's almost a game. It's just testing. It, it's just trying things. It's like a, a, a mad scientist mixing chemicals in a lab until something explodes. So we were, I was wondering for the next, uh, for the prize this year, would you have any advice for people who are working on submissions for the 2022 Pacific Spirit Poetry Prize? Absolutely. Like I would give the same advice that I would give anyone submitting broadly is always submit work that you are deeply, deeply passionate about and invested in. If you're not excited about it, there's no reason for you to uh, expect someone else to be excited about it. In regards to writing, I would cite, you know, a, an old professor of mine, Leila Lalami. She once told me, you should write something that excites you. And the reason for that is to maintain the drive to continue writing it. But it should also be something that scares you. And, uh, you know, to paraphrase her, it's, it's the fear is proof that it's something important it's something special that's worth exploring and that you're coming out of your comfort zone. It's, it's proof of growth. In regards to editing, another professor that I had, um, Alison Venice-White, she always asked us to point out where the fire in the poem is. And by fire, it's just like the most vivid, evocative, emotionally charged language. You know, at, at least the way that I took it, the goal always was how can we make this moment of fire and this moment of fire closer together. You know, just to clear away a little bit of like excess exposition, for example, how can we make the language more concise just so we can travel from a big important moment or word or phrase to the next one very, very quickly and maintain the energy throughout. Furthermore, read Prism International. 
Um, <laughs> Great advice. Amazing. <laughs> if, and it's not only to like increase your, you know, to better your odds of, of, of getting published, of being selected, but also just to know that your poem belongs there. I, I don't know how likely it is, but wouldn't it be weird if your poem ended up in a journal with other poems that just don't really seem your style, don't really seem your taste. It's it's best for you to know the home that your poem will be in and know that it's a place that you can take pride in, not only in your accomplishment, but in the peers that you have around you, the, the work that surrounds your work. And just embrace yourself for rejection, I think is a very <laughs> important, very, very important piece of advice. Um, early on, I, I think the best thing that I ever did in like my writing career was to just submit all of my juvenilia to like dozens of journals years ago and just get rejection after rejection after rejection after rejection you have to stay open-minded you have to say stay resilient and tenacious you have to be willing to grow what you have to do is Take the rejection, don't allow it to be a reflection of the quality of your work, but just know that it's it's simply a mismatching of poem to journal. If you're passionate about it, there will be a place for it. And ultimately, you, you just have to stay open to growing and to changing and keep writing, keep editing. Yeah, thank you. That That's great advice. And I think what you were saying as well about yeah, writing what you're passionate about then, then when you get those rejections, it's like, okay, they, they didn't get it, but right. there will be somewhere that does get it. And, and when you find right. that place that gets it, it's so exciting to work with like editors who really are as excited about it as you are. Exactly. I love how you said rejection is like a mismatching of like poem journal. That's a really great way to phrase it and like to frame it even in our minds. Cause I know a lot of writers might even, even though they're super passionate about the the project they might like second guess themselves like oh is it actually good like you you have so much passion when you're writing but you go back to the same project and you're like what was I thinking but like thinking of it as like oh it's a mismatch there's somewhere else that it belongs to I like that a lot thank you for sharing that of course I I really do believe that every poem has value some value yeah it's just, just a matter of a, a matter of finding the right place but you know you, you also don't want to to linger in those rejections you know you have to be ready to bounce back and just write a new one and finally we wanted to ask about what's next for you you, you mentioned that you're working on a manuscript yeah that, that, that's the main thing you know as of right now the title is dowsing that's a, a dowsing with a w uh, you know, like water dowsing searching for water and that's pretty much the main thing, the perfectionist in me is not accepting any, you know, flaws or lulls and wants to just cut out half the poems that are in it. And the procrastinator in me is like, eh, just, just, just wait, a better poem will come. And it's basically just a battle between those two sides. But yeah, I, I hope to have this thing done soon and, and share the rest of this with the world. It, it, it would be my... my my first collection. Well, we're excited to see it in the world as well and invite you for a reading. <laughs> <laughs> yes, it'd be amazing. I'd love to, for sure. Thank you so much for for your time and and for yeah, for giving your advice and everything. I really learned a lot. Thank you so thank much. Thank you so much. Yeah. And and thank you, thank you both so much for the opportunity. It's like it's it's been a pleasure to speak with you. You know, thank you to everyone at Prism to Cecily Nicholson for selecting my poem for this. Yeah, thank you very, very much. This has been lovely. You're listening to Prism Presents on CITR 101.9 FM. That was an interview with the poet and 2021 Pacific Spirit Poetry Prize winner, Miguel Perez. If you're interested in submitting to the 2022 Pacific Spirit Poetry Prize, Make sure to check out our website at prismmagazine.ca before the October 31st deadline. Thank you so much for listening. We've been your hosts, Vivian Lee and Sophia Osborne. Join us next time for more readings and conversations with inspiring writers.